Well, this feels a little bit like a second service. Well, that's right, it is. I usually have spoken twice by this time. I've only spoken once, which means you need to sit back and relax. We might be here a while. (laughs) Benjamin Franklin once said, who is rich, he who is content. Who is that? Nobody. Most of us know that Ben Franklin was not a Christian, but he sure hung around a lot of them. He thought to be truly rich, you had to be content. He looked around and concluded no one was truly rich because no one was truly content. I guess we should ask, what is contentment? Simple definition is a feeling of calm satisfaction, inner calm satisfaction. Longer generally accepted definition is a circumstance or a feature or a characteristic of something that gives rise to. There's something external that gives right, rise to that internal satisfaction. It's something agreeable out here that gives satisfaction inside. And, and, and frankly, that's generally true. People are typically content if things are going their way. If their needs are met and even some of their wants. They like their jobs. They like their spouse. They like their kids most of the time. Bills are paid. Money in the bank. Dave Ramsey would be proud. Good health. Enjoyable hobbies. Nice house. Reliable cars. But what if things are not going your way? What if you've lost your job or, or, or your spouse? What if you don't get along with your kids? What if the money runs out before the month? What if, what if your health is shaky? What if you don't even have time for hobbies and your house needs significant work or you don't even own a home and, and, and the, ca- the car, when it starts, needs new tires and you can't even afford that? What then? Is it possible to be content in those unfavorable circumstances since we all face adversity at one point or another? Is is it being rich that makes you content or contentment that makes you rich? Consider this definition. The attitude of contentment enables the believer, the follower of Christ, to maintain a spiritual balance in the midst of both favorable and adverse circumstances. (laughs) Yeah, right. Is that even possible? To be content, enjoy that inner feeling of calm satisfaction when things are against you? I think it is. But it's going to require a proper focus. And I want to tell you right now, it is not a focus on things out here. Paul talks about it as we near the end of his letter to the Philippians. You can turn to Philippians chapter 4. You know well by now that Paul is in prison in Rome. Unlike today, when you got locked up, it was left to friends and and family, if you had any, to provide for your needs. The governing authorities certainly didn't. They didn't even care. If you were to be clothed, if you were to be fed, someone better like you and provide for you, or you would starve. 
Well, Paul's been in prison for up to four years now, a couple of years in Jerusalem and and Caesarea, a couple of years in Rome. He's been under house arrest. I mean, chained to a Roman soldier. People could come and see him. People could provide for him. But but it's, it's been a long time now. Support, well, support for him may have been waning just a bit. But then... This, this church in Philippi, a church Paul started during his second missionary journey like 10 years ago, sent him some much-needed help. Epaphroditus showed up right, right out of the blue. Yeah, he, he'd, he'd been sick on the journey and almost died on the way. Yeah, he had brought some news about some division in the church at Philippi, but he had also brought some financial help. So, so Paul, in turn, writes this letter to, to the church, a church, by the way, with whom we know that he shared a very close relationship. Some suggest that this was his favorite church. He's, he shared an, an update about his circumstances. He encouraged faithful living as citizens worthy of the gospel. He warned them about false teachers. He addressed this issue of, of division. And now he's about to close the letter, and so he turns to his final purpose for writing the letter actually to say thank you. Philippians is in part actually a a thank you note. So read the text with me. Philippians chapter 4 verses 10 and following say this, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and, and going hungry, both of having abundance and, and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. N- nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Now, immediately, some of you saw a verse, like maybe your favorite verse. You might even have it tattooed on your body somewhere. Uh, you, 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 you've heard it in, in songs. You've seen it in Needlepoint. You've quoted it. Or you've heard it quoted or maybe even quoted it yourself to speak of some supernatural power you have to do the impossible. I got good news for you. We actually get to look at the verse in its context this morning. I think it costs a little bit of money, but you can actually um, get that tattoo removed. Here's the, here's the outline um, of the text. We're going to see Paul's thanks, Paul's contentment, and then Paul's commendation. Now, notice the first point, I have thanks in quotes, because a lot of people take issue with the way that Paul says thanks. They say, well, like he never really does. He gets a little closer to it in verse 18, but what what is this in verse 10? It seems like he just brings up the gift to say, took you long enough. And then he gets to verse 11 and it seems to say, I didn't really need it anyway. What's up with that? We have to understand two very important things. First, we have to know, we have to understand first century friendship. You see, at this time, the lowest form of friendship was considered a relationship that was built solely on need on utility, on usefulness. You know, you, you've had those kinds of friends before. You meet my needs and we'll be friends. Not very impressive. Also, 
at this particular time, if you did provide something, you know, say meet a need or, 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 or gave a gift, reciprocity was expected. That's a big word. How about payback? Otherwise, the relationship was seen to be imbalanced and based now on, on need, on usefulness. So for Paul to acknowledge their gift, most appropriate, but since they were so close, remember that very close relationship he had with this church? There needed to be reciprocity to keep that relationship from descending to that very low and menial um, level, to keep it at the highest level, not at that low level of obligation. That's why Paul writes what he does in verse 19. You see, He's in no position to reciprocate from prison to pay him back. So he says, hey, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And we're going to talk about what that means next week. That all sounds a bit strange to us, but we have to understand this was first century culture. We have to remember that the Bible was written within a cultural context, and Paul was a product of his culture. So just because he expresses a desire to reciprocate because, the, because of the nature of their close relationship, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't devalue friendship. This is what they did at that particular time. And we actually kind of have the same idea today. I mean, we give, right, with no expectation of return, right? But if you're in relationship with one party who only takes and you only give, take, give, take, you start to feel just a little bit used, don't you? That's the idea here. You begin to question the depth of the relationship. Paul didn't want that to happen. Now, now the second thing that we must remember is this. Paul's real thanksgiving is not for the gift itself but for what the gift represents, and that is continued relationship. Sure, the financial gift met some serious physical needs that Paul had, but more than that, more important to Paul was it communicated their continued partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 1, he had said these words as he greeted them, I thank my God in all my uh, remembrance of you all in view of your participation, your partnership, your fellowship, your sharing in the gospel from the first day, you know, 10 years ago when I planted the, when we planted the church until now. Well, well, how were they demonstrating their continued partnership in the gospel until now? Well, it was by sending them, uh, sending him this gift. By sending this sacrificial gift, and we'll come back to that because it was sacrificial, they were saying, Paul, we are still with you. We are still committed followers of Jesus Christ, partnering with you as you share the gospel, even from prison. We know why you're there. We know it's because of your commitment to the gospel, and we want you to know we're still with you. We share the same commitment. And that brought Paul great joy. Uh, their giving was sacrificial. We don't know specifically what was happening economically in Philippi other than that there seems to be this economic depression throughout the empire at this particular time. But, but, but earlier, Paul, Paul had written 
another church, uh, uh, the church in Corinth, to encourage them to give specifically for an offering that he was traveling to, to take up to help meet the benevolence needs of, of the church in Jerusalem. And so he's encouraging this, as he writes this letter, he's encouraging the church in Corinth to give, and he cites some other churches as an example. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That's Philippi. That in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of the liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation, partnership, fellowship in the support of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So this, this church at Philippi, apparently facing their own economic challenges. Now, I want you to listen to me. Facing their own economic challenges gave sacrificially to support the church in Jerusalem. They even begged Paul for the opportunity to give. Paul later tells the Corinthians, listen, while I was with you, I wasn't a burden, financial burden to you because the churches in Macedonia continued to give in the midst of their deep poverty and fully supplied my need. Then back in our text in in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul acknowledges the the church in Philippi's earlier financial gifts to him in preaching the gospel. So here's what I want you to hear, that this church in the midst of adversity was a giving church supporting believers and supporting Paul in his missionary work. And so I want to take just a moment. Last week, Last week, I gave a little bit of an update, a financial update at the end of the service, and I said thank you, and I just want you to hear it again. Thank you. I know that we in our own um, society are facing some significant financial challenges, and yet you continue to give sacrificially. Yes, sacrificially to the general fund, very, very healthy. Yes, uh, to continue the, the, the work on our building, but you also even give greatly and sacrificially to support the work of missions going on around the world. We heard about that a couple of weeks ago. And you give to the Benevolence Fund to help people in financial, physical need uh, within this church body and in some cases even uh, beyond. And I want to thank you for giving out of, in some cases, out of your um, great, uh, out of your poverty and sacrifice. Something happened. We don't know specifically what. Lots of guesses about it. But it appears from this verse 10 that Philippi had not sent Paul money for some time. Now, he says, when Epaphroditus arrived with your gift, I rejoiced greatly. I got money. No. Not, again, necessarily for the gift, but for what the gift represented. Now, at last, you have revived your concern for me. That word revived is a very picturesque, uh, picturesque word. It speaks of blooming or blossoming again, like the blooming of perennials after a long, cold winter. Your, your concern for me has come to full bloom again, finally, and this has caused me to rejoice. 
Not just rejoice, but to rejoice greatly uh, in the Lord. Now, at first glance, as you look at that, it looks like, I don't know about you, that looks like a little bit of a dig. But it's not meant to be. Paul says, I was so encouraged when you finally demonstrated that you were still with me, that you were still concerned about me, that we were still partners in the gospel. I rejoiced greatly. He hasn't used that word in the rest of this book. In fact, this is the only time this word, that adverb is used in the entire New Testament. This is the word megalos. I rejoiced greatly because of what this meant to me. I want you to notice, though, something very important. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. You say, wait, wait just a minute. The, the Philippians sent the gift. Why is Paul rejoicing in the Lord? Why wasn't he rejoicing in the Philippians? Well, because ultimately he understood that every good gift comes from God. Paul is transforming this transaction of giving and, and receiving among Christians from the typical human horizontal exchange to a divine human, think of it as a triangular interaction, because God always initiates and empowers giving. He supplies gifts, and He is the one who ultimately meets needs. God or Paul is acknowledging that God is ultimately the good behind every good. Now, it seems like even the Philippians might have taken this verse a bit negatively. So he says, indeed, I know that you were concerned before. You just lacked opportunity to show it. We don't, again, we don't know what it was that kept them from showing it. Maybe it was Paul's bouncing around from Jerusalem to Caesarea to, to, to Rome, and it took him a while to track him down. Maybe it was Epaphroditus' sickness, and it took him a while um, to get there. Maybe it was their own economic woes that kept them from giving for a while. Whatever it was, he now knew that they were still committed to him and the gospel. And this brought him great joy. This brings us to our second point. It's kind of interesting. It's, Paul actually takes a bit of an aside from his thank you note for the gift, takes an aside, but in that aside, we learn much about contentment. Having, having just thanked them, not wanting them to think that he was only writing because the money that he sent now provided for him a warm meal, he says, and not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I am. And that statement seems contradictory. It certainly contradicts the typical definition of contentment, because Paul says, my contentment is not conditioned on my circumstances. In fact, my contentment is not conditioned on anything external. That inner calm doesn't come from out here. That inner satisfaction. He says, I've learned. And later he says, I've learned the secret Interesting word choice. That's an old word that he seems to resurrect that speaks of learning something within the mysteries, the mystery religion. It was something learned only by those 
initiated few, those who were on the inside, certainly not those on the outside. So Paul says, I have learned by being on the inside what it means to be content. The inside of what? That's the question. The inside of what? Now, this verse presents some other rather significant challenges. You see, there was at this time a, 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 a prominent philosophical group called the Stoics. One of their main teachers was a guy by the name of Seneca. And their, the ultimate goal of their movement was inner peace and contentment. They saw contentment, that, 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 that calm satisfaction, as the essence of all virtues. You see, if you weren't content, it would lead to a demise in the rest of your virtues. They, 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 they were They described the contented person as the one who was independent of all people and all things. They were self-sufficient and independent. The Stoic line actually went like this. A man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his will to resist the force of circumstances. In other words, the Stoic, they were looking for the same thing. That regardless of what's going on out here, in here, I'm content. Seneca actually said it this way. The happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. So there you go. You want to be happy? You want to be content? You need to just put up with what's going on in your life. That sounds a little bit familiar. They wanted to rise above poverty. They wanted to rise above their uh, prosperity, which sounds an awful lot like Paul just said. It sounds to me like Paul is teaching stoicism. I've learned the secret to be content in whatever circumstances. And there is, frankly, some similarity in the language that Paul uses, and many suggest that it was intentional, that Paul borrows from this well-known philosophy But the similarity I want you to understand ends with the language because these two philosophies are worlds apart. For the Stoic, and and by the way, for many today, the humanists and many Eastern religions, the answer is to be found within. You need to try to rise above your circumstances and find internal peace and contentment within yourself through meditation or Yoga, see how that works for you, or whatever. This is not what Paul is saying. Yes, he says, I know how to be content whatever the circumstances. He goes on in verse 12. I know how to get along in in humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. Paul says, whether I find myself in humble means, which he contrasts with prosperity, um, which means that, that humble means is to be divined as poverty. He says, he goes on to say, whether I'm filled or hungry, whether I have an abundance or whether I'm suffering need, in plenty or in want, in wealth or in want, doesn't matter. Um, the, 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 the humble need here, or the humble uh, means here is speaking of economic need, doesn't matter. I have found the secret to being content. And it makes sense that he's talking about economics here because he's writing to thank the Philippians for their financial gift. Not that I, 
Speak from one, he says, because I have learned to be content in want or wealth, with or without financial means, hungry, full, prosperity, poverty, doesn't matter, which flies in the face of our capitalistic society. We are completely confused about what it means to be content. We think contentment is to be found in stuff, particularly acquiring more and more stuff. Francis Schaeffer, the late great theologian, described Western civilization this way. He says that we have a desire to acquire two things, personal peace and affluence. Personal peace, you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And let's together pursue affluence because therein personal peace and affluence result in contentment. And, and our society and frankly many of us have been sucked into it. We really do think that the rich are content and the poor are not, can't be. I'll be satisfied, I'll be content if I can only have a little more. How much more? Well, a little more than I currently have. Story told of a story is told of a Quaker who had a had a piece of property. He said he would give it away to whoever could prove to him that he was content. And a rich man comes to him and he says, I am content. I have all that money can buy. I have everything that I need. I'm content. And the Quaker looked at him and said, Then why do you want my property? Because we always think that just a little more will make me happy. A little more will make me content. Now, we know about Paul's living in humble means while suffering need. Whether that need uh, was material deprivation such as food or clothing or shelter, even a lack of rest because of great toil and hardship. He talked about that particular uh, aspect a lot in his letters. Let me give you a couple of verses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. Apostle Paul, homeless. Apparently wasn't living his best life now. I don't know. 2 Corinthians 11, For I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That doesn't sound very attractive. Now, well, you want sign me up. That sounds like the American dream. Paul obviously knew about living in humble means, in hunger, without I mean, while suffering need, but, and he was content in, in that. So when did he experience prosperity? When was he filled? When did he have an abundance? Well, we have to fill in the blanks just a bit, certainly um, because his life knew more suffering than it did abundance. Maybe it was while he was in Philippi, you know, and he, 10 years ago when he planted the church and it met in the home of Lydia, that wealthy merchant. Maybe it was those times when that church sent and met all of his financial needs. Maybe it was even now when they had sent him a new financial gift, money to care for his needs. And then you go, wait, wait, just, just, just a minute. Wasn't he in prison? Yeah. 
He was. And most commentators agree that while that, that, that what Paul likely considered prosperity and abundance is not to be compared with what we consider prosperity and abundance. I know, no, no, I've taken some pot shots about our American society, and it's not to speak poorly about our material prosperity. God, for His own sovereign purposes, has chosen to bless us, and, 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 and the church in the United States has largely taken the blessings of God and blessed those around the world, which is what we're supposed to do. But it is to point out to you this morning that different cultures in different times probably viewed prosperity a little bit different than we do. And I want you to notice Paul's contentment in prosperity did not lead him to self-indulgence. Having material things was not the cause of his inner joy and contentment. Again, we think, I'll be content when I reach this level of prosperity, and we never seem to get there because we always want more. And I'm going to suggest that we're not content because we're focusing on the wrong things. Paul says, I'm really thankful for your gift. Then he qualifies it. I'm not so much thankful for the gift as I am for your renewed partnership with me in the gospel. And I'm not so much thankful for the gift as if I am suffering great need and am really discontent. You hear what I just said? I'm not thankful because I was discontent, because I was hungry. That has nothing to do with it. I've learned to be content whatever circumstances I find myself in. I've learned the secret of how to get along in humble means and prosperity and hunger and being filled in need and abundance. So what then? Please, does anybody here, do, do you need to know the secret? Is it to be found in stoic self-sufficiency and independence? Just have a bunch of little spocks running around? Is it to be found in just grinning and bearing it? Is it just to be to adopt a case, sirrah, sirrah, attitude, whatever will be, will be? No. Paul, Paul's view is as far from self-sufficiency and self-dependency as it can get. It is true that his contentment was not conditioned by circumstances, but nor was it found in himself, self-sufficiency or self-dependence. Listen to me. Write this down. Here's the secret. Paul's contentment was to be found in Christ sufficiency. His relationship with Christ made plenty and want, prosperity and poverty irrelevant. His joy in Christ was not heightened by prosperity. I'm more happy because I have more, nor was it diminished by poverty. Verse 13, famous verse, and the, secret, and the secret is this, I can do all things through Him, through Christ who strengthens me. 
And with that statement, he transforms this stoic-sounding self-sufficiency to an altogether necessary Christ-sufficiency and Christ-dependency. You want to be content this morning? You need to find it in one place, and it's in a person, and that is in Jesus Christ. If you are looking anywhere else, you'll never find it. Does anybody here need to hear that? So that what? I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me so I can jump tall buildings in a single bound. I can run faster than a speeding bullet. I am more powerful than a steaming locomotive. That's not the point. And the use of this verse to help you become bigger, stronger, faster is not what it's teaching. So listen to me. You should not tape this verse over your weight bench. You should not tape this verse on your refrigerator during a diet. Paul is not claiming a personal omnipotence because of his connection with Christ, like he can do all things supernaturally without exception. That's not it. He says, I can be content no matter what my circumstances are, because I can do all things, whether prosperity or poverty, poverty through Christ, in Christ more literally, who strengthens me in the midst of prosperity and adversity. It's not self-dependence. It's not, it is um, not self-independence. It is Christ-dependence. And with Christ in me, I can find that elusive contentment no matter what is going on out here. He strengthens me to face what I will face today. I can do all things through the course of life to experience contentment, inner joy, and calm satisfaction because of Christ in me, the hope of glory. Listen. Who is rich? He that is content. Who is that? The one in Christ. Christ-centeredness was Paul's whole life. And this gives us a greater understanding and reminds us of that great verse that he wrote in chapter 1. For me to live is Christ. If you're looking to live for anything else and find joy and satisfaction in that, you will ultimately fail. So that as one author writes, whatever comes Paul's way, he has the strength to meet it. If he is brought low, he is a man in Christ. If he abounds, he is a man in Christ. In any and every circumstance, he is a man in Christ. As a man in Christ, he can do all things. As a man in Christ, he is content regardless of the situation. There's the secret. In Christ. Another author writes, those in want learn patience and trust in suffering. Those in wealth learn humility and dependence in prospering, not to mention the joy of giving. In Christ. Last thing, having rejoiced greatly in the Lord because of their renewed concern, having implicitly thanked them for their gift, 
having given us an aside of eternal value. Paul says in verse 14, nevertheless, <laughs> that is even though, listen, even though I'm content um, in whatever circumstances I find myself, I'm not rejoicing because now I get a meal. It doesn't matter. You have done well to share with me in my affliction. That word share is a word that we've seen many times in this book. It's that word koinonia. Uh, you have done well to partner with me, share with me, fellowship with me in my affliction. That could be one of two things that they also are sharing in affliction. Remember chapter 1 verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Uh, but it might be that he's saying you have done well to join with me in my suffering for the gospel by your, by your gift. The, the point is this morning, the point is, if you want to find contentment, you're going to find it in one place, and that is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, my prayer for us this morning, in the midst of a culture that screams to us, you can be happy, you can be content if you buy this, if you own that, if you make just a little bit more money, if you take this vacation, if you visit that place, in this culture that screams that contentment is to be found out here, would you remind us as followers of Christ that out here has nothing to do with contentment, and it has everything to do with Christ. In His name we pray, amen.